0: Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Acts, chapter 18. I can find that on page 927 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. So, Acts 18, verses 1 through 11. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, There are difficulties in everything except in eating pancakes. Having just had our annual pancakes with the pastor yesterday, I can say I I resonate with Spurgeon's wisdom. And I suspect that you can as well. In John chapter 16, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what he's about to go through on the cross. And even as he prepared himself to go and make this sacrifice for sin... We see in the Gospel of John how Jesus intentionally spent time comforting his disciples and equipping them for what was about to happen. He knew that the cross was going to test them to the breaking point. And so he says to them, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trouble, difficulty. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Spurgeon's pancake quote hits home because it's true and because he spoke it from experience. I don't know if you know much about Charles Spurgeon, but he is widely regarded today as one of the greatest preachers who has ever lived. He had a vibrant ministry that that had a deep and lasting impact, not just on the church that he served, but on the whole city of London. Thousands of people came to Christ through his preaching. I remember reading a story about someone who was cleaning up trash and they came across a track he had written and came to Christ. I mean, it was amazing ways that God was working through him. Thousands came to faith and countless others have had their faith and their love for Christ enriched and deepened through his works, through his writing. But Spurgeon was a man who was well acquainted with suffering and difficulty. He gets a a high name as the Prince of Preachers. But really, he was a man who was treated in his own day with scorn and disdain in the local papers for his commitment to the truth. He was regularly slandered by people. He was ostracized by his own denomination for standing against a clear theological downgrade that was beginning to take over the pulpits and churches in their area. He suffered from chronic physical ailment, sometimes not even being able to, to come into the pulpit that he loved to preach from. One of his students uh, wrote that for most of his ministry career, Spurgeon lived in constant fellowship with physical pain. Now, on this side of Spurgeon's life, we can see how God used him and deepened and enriched his relationship with Christ. But at the time, it, sh- it gave Spurgeon a great deal. He struggled deeply. One of, uh, on top of everything else that he went through, he was known as regularly struggling with depression and melancholy. It's hard to think like, that a man like Spurgeon, a man who God used in such powerful, obvious ways for the kingdom of Christ, could have struggled and suffered like that. I, reading through, I was reading through a biography on him, and just reading through the things that he went through, I, I blushed to think about my own complaints. But as we consider Spurgeon's life, we can see that God had a purpose in the suffering, even in, even the, even in the dishes that have to be cleaned up after we've eaten our pancakes, The biographer Elizabeth Scoglin points out that Spurgeon became the spiritual giant that he forgot that he was, not merely in spite of the struggles that he had with depression, but likely because of them. God's servants are not immune to suffering. They are not immune to bouts of depression and melancholy. We are not exempt from disappointments, from depression, or fear. We can think of many examples of this throughout The biblical the scriptures we have Moses, David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Jonah, and so on. Jesus never told us that we would be free from these things. In fact, he guaranteed that we would struggle with them. But he also, and strategically, comforts us, reminding us that he has in fact overcome the world with all of its troubles. When when God allows his servants to suffer, he has a purpose for it he uses suffering such as that to prune his people to make them more fruitful to purify them he uses these things to shape us into the image of christ who suffered for us through our weakness the power and the victory of christ is exalted and made complete he humbles us so that he may exalt us he makes us more than conquerors in christ Now, even as God allows his saints to go through times of suffering, he also provides us with means of joy, means of grace that are meant to rescue and provide us with strength to go on when we have come to the end of ourselves. Like the angel that fed Elijah bread beneath the broom tree in the desert because the journey was too great for him, God lovingly cares for his people, gives us strength to keep going, Even we are tempted to give up. And that is what we're looking at today in our passage. Let's begin uh, by reading God's word. If you would, please stand with me as I read from Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, preaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, when Paul went from Athens and came to Corinth, he was low. He had been pushed from place to place in Macedonia and Achaia, And although uh, although it seems that Silas and Timothy did end up coming to him in Athens, it's clear that they were not there very long. Some of the Athenians, as we read last week, believed the gospel that Paul preached, but many rejected it and politely rejected Paul as well. And so Luke tells us that Paul traveled from that city to the city of Corinth. We can get a sense of the difficulties that Paul was going through as he entered the city from what he says in one of his letters to the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he reminds the Corinthians how when he came to them, he had come in weakness, in fear, and with much trembling. Paul had endured a lot. Some think that he was probably struggling with illness from his, the beatings that he had received in Philippi. And it's possible this is also when he has his conversation with the Lord about that thorn in his flesh that he had repeatedly prayed about, asking God to remove it from him. Besides the physical pain, we know that Paul was also struggling with the emotional strain of being separated from his close friends and that he was sick with anxiety over the state of the church in Thessalonica. He had been brought low, But it wasn't without purpose. And God had a plan to keep and sustain Paul as he battled through these many difficulties. As we look at this passage, I see three distinct means of grace that God used to encourage and sustain Paul to continue doing the work he had appointed him to do. These are avenues of mercy that God continues to use with his people today. So my, my, my aim this morning really is to encourage you to press into these same things so that you may have strength to endure and, and to last when you are battered and pressed on every side, when, when you are struggling to see God's goodness in the battle, and when you are fighting against depression as you look at the apparent state of things. So first we see that God provided Paul with a fellowship of friends. We see that God gave him a vibrant picture of, the, of the, what, the, what he was doing in the kingdom. And then we also see that he called Paul to trust him as his divine protector. So we're gonna, our three points this morning are gonna, that we're going to be looking at are the fellowship of friends, seeing the big picture, and trusting our divine protector. Let's begin by looking at this Interesting fellowship of friends. Now, the city of Corinth was on a plateau in the area that connected central Greece to um, the area around the Peloponnese. Um, it It was actually built quite high, and it made it very safe and secure as a city. And given that it was also next to the coast, uh, it became a very important, influential, secure city that maintained its position all the way up until the time of the Romans. It was a relatively large city. At this time, it probably had about 200,000 people from all over the world living in it. And that included a significant number of Jews. Now, Corinth was known throughout the world. It was a favorite place for Roman emperors to come visit. uh, And it was known for two things. First, it was known for its temples, especially to the goddess Aphrodite, and then related to that, it was also known for its rampant sexual immorality. Uh, Corinth became a byword for sexual immorality. If you go and you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, uh, we can very clearly see that this caused significant problems for the church there. Paul is regularly having to address issues that were coming up as a result of where they lived. This was a city which, like Athens, we would expect would have provoked Paul's spirit with its just utter darkness. And yet, as Paul comes to the city of Corinth, he doesn't go about reaching the city in the same way that he did the city of Athens. Rather than going into the open market, finding people to debate with, Paul comes into the city a little more subtly. Having entered the city, Luke tells us that he found a Jewish man named Aquila, who was a native of the area of Pontus, who had just recently come to Corinth with his wife, Priscilla. Now, Aquila and Priscilla owned a tent making business, and we see them travel quite a bit throughout the New Testament between Rome, Corinth, and Ephesus, which leads some scholars to think that they had a, a relatively established tent making business that had wings in all these important cities, that they were regularly traveling between them for work. Now, at this point, we have no reason to believe that Paul knew this couple prior to coming to Corinth. They themselves had only recently come from Corinth, uh, come to Corinth from Italy because of the emperor Claudius' edict commanding all the Jews to leave Rome because there were riots happening in the Jewish circles over Christus. Now, they had come to, to Corinth specifically because of the edict, And while their initial connection to Paul seems to be more or less a matter of coincidence, it doesn't take us long to see how the hand of God was at work in bringing this dynamic couple together with Paul. What we see here is the forging of a friendship that is going to last for years. And it is really amazing. Now, Paul, unbeknownst to us, Luke explains, was also a tent maker by trade. Jewish law required theology students to learn a trade to support themselves while they were studying. And this is apparently the trade that Paul had learned. So this and their common heritage uh, had a way of bringing Paul to Aquila and Priscilla's door, at least initially. As he came into the city, Luke says that Paul went to see them. And because they were of the same trade, he worked with them in their business. But God had so much more in store for Paul and this couple. You see, Aquila and Priscilla were also believers. And Luke doesn't indicate that they became believers through Paul's witness. It actually appears that they were already believers, that they had already believed the gospel through the testimony of someone else. The gospel had come to Rome, and God had opened their hearts to receive it. And while I'm sure that it was very difficult and inconvenient for Aquila and Priscilla to leave their business in Rome, to travel many miles to the city of Corinth, we can see that God had a very specific purpose and design for bringing them there, to be a force of encouragement for Paul as he came into the city in fear and in trembling. Their house, their business became a means For Paul to live and support himself, as he continued to do the work of the gospel, going to the synagogue every Sabbath and working to persuade Jews and Greeks of the good news of Jesus. Now, so as we look at this, Paul may have come to know this couple through work. But God had a greater purpose in this. Priscilla and Aquila become some of Paul's dearest friends. They are listed throughout the New Testament in multiple of Paul's letters, being called fellow workers with him, who labored alongside him and even risked their lives for him. Paul is always commending them in thankfulness, greeting them in his letters to the church in Rome, to Corinth, and also in his letter to Timothy. When Apollos comes and starts to preach the gospel at at Ephesus, this is the couple who takes him aside and explains the gospel to him more clearly. They, They are a couple who lived well in the pursuit of Christ and the support of the church in cities all across the Roman Empire. And as we look at them, they are an example to all of us, and especially, I think, to those of us who are married, to think about how, we are to, how we're called to use our homes, our businesses, our families to support the work of the gospel and to be a friend to those in need. Now, knowing how Paul arrived in Corinth, knowing that he was struggling physically emotion, and emotionally, we can understand that he had plenty of reasons to be down, to be discouraged, to feel alone, even though he was not alone. Paul had not been forgotten. God had not forsaken him. He had not abandoned him. In fact, he was already at work in ways that neither Paul, nor Aquila, nor Priscilla could have anticipated. Through this trouble in Rome and trouble in Athens, God brought them together and forged them together in a sweet friendship that would serve the gospel and bring light to the lost in darkness. those who were lost in darkness. Even when they are brought low, we see that God brought comfort to the heart of Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila through a sweet friendship that they had in their fellowship with Christ. When, When Christ calls us to himself, he calls us to an individual faith. He calls us individually. He knows us each by name. But he does not call us to walk the road of our faith by ourselves, he brings friends into our lives. He supplies our needs and he, he brings us into fellowship with others who walk beside us in the truth, who we're able to pour our hearts out to, who rebuke us when we're out of line, who support us when we're in need and who we are called to support as well. Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9 says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. As we look at this Beginning of a new friendship, we can see that godly friendship really is meant to play an essential role in our sanctification and our growth in godliness. One of the places where we get to have that fellowship is in the local church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes how the local church is one body composed of many members, but with each one working together for the other's good. We cannot hope to thrive in our faith. And in our obedience to Jesus, if we aren't also joining ourselves to that body, a hand will not thrive if you cut it off and throw it away from the body it belongs to. But mere membership in a local church doesn't amount to much if we're not pressing in to have real relationships with each other. In the South, it's really popular for people to belong to have a membership in a church and to actually never go there. I, I, growing up as a, as a son of a pastor, I remember get my dad getting lots of calls from people all over the place whose aunt's, uncle, you know, twice removed cousin was connected to the church and they had a grave plot there and they were going to be there that weekend to bury someone. It, it was a strange relationship because there was no relationship. You can come to church and you can still feel lonely can have your, me- your name on a membership roll and still feel like you have no connection. That's because relationships and godly friendships take work and effort. We have to be willing to open ourselves to one another. We have to press into one another. If there's anything that has been proved to me over the past two months is that we cannot take each other's spiritual condition for granted. It is not someone stepping over the line to ask you, how is your walk with Christ? It is them loving you, and we need to be asking each other that regularly. You don't have to be best friends with everyone in the church, but you do need to press into the people who are sitting here around you. These people are not here by accident. In the same way that God brought Paul and Priscilla and Aquila together through an unexpected means. We say he sovereignly forged them together into a relationship, a friendship that allowed them to walk together in brotherly love and affection for the glory of Christ. It's a beautiful thing. The people who are here sitting with you, your fellow church members, they have committed to you in faith to walk beside you in brotherly and sisterly love and affection We have covenanted with each other to rejoice in each other's joys and to bear with each other in each other's sorrows. If this is going to work for us as a church, then we have to press into that friendship. We have to make ourselves available to the inconvenience, the cost, the late nights and the early mornings, because that's the calling Jesus has placed in our lives. And it's through those things that he hones us and shapes us and sharpens us to be effective instruments in his kingdom. There is not one of us sitting in this room who is here by coincidence. We are here for a reason. The God of all comfort has a purpose for each one of us to press into one another. So brothers and sisters, let's learn from Aquila and Priscilla. As hard as it was for them to leave Rome and go to Corinth, look at how God used them. Look at how he used their inconvenience to bring about something beautiful. It was not an accident that God brought them here at this time and at this place. And look at how they leveraged their business, their time, their home to care for a brother who was in need. And as we look at that, consider, are we doing that? Something I think we can, sure, we can all improve in. But are we doing that? Something for us to take with us. And try to emulate in our own lives. So God used friendship to encourage Paul as he came, but he also used giving him a bigger picture of what he was doing in the kingdom to encourage him as well. And that brings us to our second point. We need to develop a bigger picture of a fruitful gospel. Let me ask you this. As you look out on the state of the church today, let's just say in the West, are you depressed? Are you discouraged? There's a lot going on, especially in the West that I think can get a lot of us down. I know that there are many of you who are struggling on maybe on a daily basis, who are frustrated, maybe angry at the state of things that you see around you. And I want you to know, I get it. It is hard and it's getting harder. There is an obvious decline in our, cultural, in our, our, our culture, morally and spiritually. I think I, I read a figure earlier this week that 70% of Americans, that the figure had dropped in 20 years. It used to be 90% of Americans believed in, that there was a God, and it has dropped to 70%. There's been a moral and a spiritual decline. There's no sense in ignoring that. And it, but the question is, what are we going to do with it? Sometimes it feels, I think, like you're taking hit after hit, and so maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe your mind is conflicted with doubts and questions that have left you in a state of melancholy. Maybe your heart is full of anxiety about what the future holds. If that's you, let me tell you that I think you would have found good company with Paul here. There was a lot on Paul's mind as he came through the gates of the city of Corinth. In particular, we know he was concerned about the state of the church in places like Thessalonica. He had been forced out of that city earlier than he would have liked, and he was desperate to know how those brothers and sisters were. In fact, he he is terrified that the pressure that had been put, that had pushed him out and had come down hard on them, was going to have its way with them, that his sacrifice would be in vain. If you have a loved one in harm's way, then you're not able to focus on much more than accept to know want to know the news of how they're doing. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about how desperate he was to go and see the Thessalonians. He says that when he could bear it no longer, he was willing for Timothy to depart from him and go check on the church, to make sure to establish and exhort these believers in the faith. He had not received word about the state of the church in Thessalonica until he came to Corinth. And as he was in Corinth working and making tents and reasoning with people in the synagogue, we know that his soul was in agony over the church, concerned that the pressure in, there in Thessalonica and in Macedonia may have gotten to the believers there. But Paul found a certain joy and fellowship in the company of Priscilla and Aquila. But he found even more when his, when his good friend Silas and his Apprentice Timothy rejoined him in the city with news that the church in Thessalonica was in fact standing strong in the faith despite all the pressure that was being put on them by the enemies of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 3 chapter 6 Paul says but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and has reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us even as we long to see you for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith. You can sense how Paul just whew, has this sigh of relief as he hears that the church is standing strong despite the fact that he's not there. Timothy and Silas brought good news to Paul about these churches that he loved. The suffering and the hardships that they had endured for the gospel was not in vain. Even though they had not been able to spend as much time in those cities as they would have liked, God was clearly moving and working in the believers there to hold them fast to the truth. If you get a chance, read the letters that Paul writes to the the church in Thessalonica, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, especially 1 Thessalonians, because as you read that, you're going to see Paul's own voice come out, and he's astonished to hear that they are doing as well as they are, and he's praising God constantly for the way he has worked in spite of human reason, in spite of what maybe should have happened, to accomplish his will in their lives. He's elated. He can see the joy and the comfort that came on his soul as he heard about it. The gospel was expanding. Christ was getting his glory. He was building his church, and the gates of hell were not overcoming it. Sometimes it is really easy to get tunnel vision about the kingdom It is really easy to get fixated on what we're seeing here or what we're not seeing or what we want to see, but it's not happening. We want to see results and we want to see them now. And that's not a bad desire. But the kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. It is a global kingdom. And it's bigger than what you and I are able to see here and now. Believe it or not, God is working in ways that you and I are not aware of in places we have never been, in ways that would absolutely blow your minds. I love to hear the reports we get from our missionaries because they have a way of taking us, our eyes, off the struggles that we're dealing with right here and right now to see what God is doing in other places. It's an incredible thing. It is incredibly encouraging. If we are depressed over the state of the church, perhaps we need to have our vision of the kingdom of God refreshed and reopened. Every week, we pray for a different missionary partner. We do that because we believe that God calls us to support our brothers and sisters abroad, not merely to contribute financially to help support them, but to pray for them because they are doing something that God must bless if it's going to happen. And God uses the prayers of his people to exalt Christ in doing that work. But as we pray for them, that prayer has another benefit as well. It encourages us to see that God is in fact moving, that Christ is in fact building his church the gospel is going to hard places. The Spirit is working in the hearts of men and women who don't speak the same language or have the same culture or customs that you and I have, but who are steadfast on the gospel and who have one heart, just as you and I have one heart, to see Christ glorified. And that is a reason to rejoice. Whatever God purpose God has for each and every one of us, whatever, God, whatever purpose God has for us as a church, He has a big purpose that is happening here and is happening there. Part of fighting for joy in the midst of that difficulty is recognizing that the kingdom of God isn't about you and it isn't about me. It's about King Jesus. And these reports we get back from our ministry partners show us just how dedicated God is to the glory of Christ and the salvation of souls. Paul's joy at this report says something to us about the spirit of humility that is ours in Jesus. The churches in Thessalonica and Berea were there in part because of Paul's testimony. He was faithful to go, but they were there ultimately because of the power of the glory of King Jesus. God's work was bigger than Paul. I know it's hard to think that. I mean, Paul is one of the most phenomenal, most outspoken apostles, and yet God didn't need him to accomplish his work. He used Paul as a chosen vessel. God's work was bigger than Paul, and just like John the Baptist, when Paul heard about what was happening in these cities, he counted it his joy to know that Christ was increasing even while he was decreasing. One of the key ways we fight for joy in the midst of difficulties and hardships and apparent setbacks is by embracing this self-forgetfulness that rejoices with the truth and lives to exalt King Jesus. It's recognizing that we aren't the main character of the story of our lives or the story of the world. Christ is. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, the late pastor Tim Keller says, The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. By thinking of ourselves less and of Christ more, we are equipped to live with a freedom in this world that counts everything else as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. This is the call to the cross. It's the call of discipleship, the call to deny ourselves. But even as it is a call to deny ourselves, it is also a call to make ourselves glad in Christ. It is a call that will hold us fast even while the world is on fire around us. It is a call that helps us to say no to former pleasures and lesser saviors that once dominated our lives. It's a call that invests in heavenly treasure over and against temporary earthly treasures. God means for you to be glad, not not just in what he is doing in your own life, but also in what he is doing in the lives of others here and abroad. And he makes us glad by giving us a bigger picture of what he is doing. We talked about the importance of having good godly friendships. Along with that, I think this is why it is so important for us to be talking with each other about what God is doing in your own life. You're not bragging. You are, well, you are bragging. You're bragging about the glory of Christ. You're you're, you're telling people, this is what God is doing in my life, and I want you to be encouraged by it. And as you get to hear that back, you get to draw encouragement as well. You're not alone. We grow in joy by seeing the bigger picture of the gospel. Finally, we see that God worked to give Paul gladness through his divine protection. When Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Corinth, Luke tells us that Paul went back to full-time ministry. In verse 5, he says that Paul was occupied with the word. The, the word here is more, as it, the ESV, the way it's translated, it doesn't quite capture what is being said there. It is, what Luke, the, work, the word that Luke has there is actually this idea of, Luke, of Paul throwing himself back into full-time ministry. He's committed to the word. Paul's heart has been made full. He's, he has these new friends who are pouring into him, and he has heard about this new report on how the church is doing abroad, and he's encouraged, so he's going he goes back into the fray and he works full time to show the, the, to show the Jews that God has kept his promise through Christ. Unfortunately, despite Paul's attempts, we see that many of the Jews who heard him reason from the scriptures were not convinced. And again, they turn hostile. Luke says that they opposed him and reviled him. And so finally, he, we see that he stands up, shakes out his garments and says to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. And so he leaves there. And he goes to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, who is actually next door to the synagogue. The hearts of many of the Jews in Corinth, like that of the Jews in other cities, was hard to the gospel. We see that they remain unconvinced by Paul's testimony to the scriptures. They simply couldn't accept a crucified Messiah. But it was not a complete loss. In verse 8, Luke says that Crispus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, believed the Lord. And along with his entire household. And then after Paul had shaken his garments out in judgment and headed next door, there were many Corinthians who came, who heard Paul speak, who believed and were baptized. We know that Paul loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. And it's hard to read that he could have come to a point like this where he finally just shook his clothes out as a testimony against them because of their hardness of heart. But it wasn't as if the word of God had failed the rejection of the gospel in the synagogue at Corinth ended up opening up opportunities for many of the Gentiles in the city to become believers. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. Truly, I say to you that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Those are heavy words. The Jews who rejected the gospel in Corinth give us a true picture of the condition of the hardness of the human heart apart from God's grace. God is not shy to tell us that his wrath is revealed against those who will not repent and come to him through his Son. In Romans 10 verse 21, he says, "...all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people." But God has not rejected His people. He worked in the heart of Crispus and of others, even Gentiles who were not seeking Him, to come to a saving knowledge of the truth, to show His surpassing faithfulness and His power in the cross of Christ. We must never take our salvation for granted. It is a gift of grace, and it is a gift of grace every time we see God work in the life of a person to convict them of their sin, To open their eyes to the truth and to give them a heart of faith to believe the good news so that they trust in Christ. So now, as we read how Paul left the synagogue and went next door, we're kind of expecting for another riot to happen. But Luke tells us about a vision that Paul has one night. In verse 9, he says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid but go on speaking and do not be silent for i am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for i have many in this city who are my people and he stayed for a year and six months teaching the word of god among them if paul's heart had not already been comforted by his fellowship with his new friends and the report of the churches abroad then this vision that he received in corinth had to do it this is like when joshua met the commander of the army of the Lord before he was about to go and take on Jericho. Do not be afraid. Keep on going. Keep at it, Paul. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep proclaiming this message of salvation. I have many in this city who are mine. Keep going. No one is going to lay a finger on you because I am with you. There are three reasons this should have comforted Paul's heart. First, it confirmed Paul in what he was doing. Despite the challenge, despite the toll, the toll it had taken on him, it was worth it. Christ was being honored, and as Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is game. Second, it should have comforted him because God is confirming to him that he has many more people in this city who are his. The Jews in the synagogue may have ridiculed him over the message he preached, but God had plans to call men and women from the nations into his flock. And he says, they are mine. So Paul has a promise that this message and this mission is going to be successful. The third reason this vision would have encouraged Paul is because God tells him that he is present with him in the work. At the end of the day, it isn't Paul making the gospel take root in people's hearts. It was the Lord. And the Lord was telling Paul, keep going. I am with you. No one will touch you. Keep on. Keep going. And we do not have to have the same dream for ourselves to draw encouragement from Paul's vision about the work that is before us here in our own city. We preach the same gospel that Paul preached. We have received what he received. This is our banner. This is our commitment, our hope, our anchor. Second, we have a promise that Christ will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are over 48,000 people in the city limits of Sheboygan and there are many more beyond that. God has called us together as a church just as he did in Corinth and he is working here. Third, we have the assurance that Christ is with us as well. just as true now as it was when Jesus first gave that commission. He is not a shepherd who abandons his flock. He is with us. He has been with us, and he will always be with us. Brothers and sisters, the culture around us is changing rapidly, but do not let that cause you to despair. Our hope is in Christ the King. He has given us each other. He is working in the world. And he is with us to build his church. So as we see the comfort this brought Paul, let us press into these, these promises with a new, fresh vigor, with faith. And let us commit ourselves to the word. And may God delight in us and honor Christ as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for the way that the Bible opens up The men and women who are in it, in all their flaws and all their weaknesses, how in their emptiness we see the glory of Christ made full. How in when they battled with depression, you were there to comfort and guide them. How when the world seemed to be having the upper hand, you in the midst of that weakness proved that your power and your glory will prevail Lord, no one wants to be put in a position of trouble and challenge and, and, and trial. No one asks for that. And yet, in your goodness, you still design for your saints to go through times that press us. Because, Lord, you are not just committed to our salvation. You are committed to making us pure in Christ. You, you refine those who love like, like, a, like, a, like a refiner puts gold into a fire the promise that you will bring it out more pure and more glorious than it went in. And Lord, as there are many things that pressed us that that we may have even brought with us this morning that have been vying for our attention as we've been reading your word and singing together, even having conversations this morning, we want to give those things to you and confess that we are but dust, but Christ has made us more than conquerors in him. His victory is sure. And help us to lean into that, Father. Give us hearts to rest in that. Lord, I pray that this afternoon we would go from this place and we would just feel at peace about what you are doing in the world and through us. And that as we press on this Monday morning, that you will give us strength to press on in Christ. That we will encourage each other in the fellowship of the saints. That we will have eyes to see your hand at work, not just in our own lives, but in those around us and in the church abroad. And finally, Lord, give us eyes to see your presence with us, that we would not dismiss your work as mere coincidence or as luck, but as your sovereign hand of providence that is always with us, always present, always dedicated to the joy of your people in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, to press into that and to be the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, in response to your word, O God. Amen to what we.